and I made it to my home place. I found triumph of the will, where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a My name is Henry, and I'd like to welcome you to Fortress on a Hill. My co-hosts and I are a group of leftist American veterans who scour the news headlines looking for stories related to the military and veteran communities of the U.S. But you're not going to hear most of the typical military tropes here. Here we take those same stories and we clear out some of the cobwebs and bullshit. We ask hard questions of our leaders and demand an end to the militarism that has permeated our society. We have a military budget of $750 billion, three times more than China, and seven times more than Russia. While here at home, American infrastructure and domestic policy languish, especially in the era of Donald Trump. However, Big Don is only the latest in a long line of presidential warmongers and bastards. Our country has lost enough to regime change and military operations the world over, Operations that, by and large, only take innocent lives or providing no real protection from threats to our country. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, and the list goes on. It's time for a change. Thank you for being with us. Rosa Del Duca, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed your book. I uh, I read quite slowly, so I'm, I'm I'm a little sad to say that I haven't quite finished it yet. But <laughs> it is an amazing piece of work. It it there were so many pieces of it that took me back to my time as a soldier. Um, I, oddly odd, uh, oddly enough, you and I were at Fort Lewis at the same time. You're kidding. Um, no, yeah, in uh, in 05, I had come back from Iraq in February of that year, and then in August, I went to take a job with uh, Army CID doing uh, drug suppression work. Um, so during that time, I was training too. We were, we did a gas chamber range, uh, all kinds of other stuff. But yeah, I thought that was a neat, neat little <laughs> piece of history for us. So, yeah. so I, w- I wanted to start our discussion with a quote from your book, and it, thus far as the favorite, my favorite favorite thing that I've read so far, and it was a a quote you made about the war in Afghanistan, watching it on TV, and I don't even understand how going after 19 terrorists turned into a war. Yeah, that's something as a teenager, I I certainly did not, I didn't get it. You know, uh, 19 people came over, and suddenly we're invading this entire country, and yeah, I still remember that um, going over to my sister's house on the night they launched the ground assault or maybe the air assault. Mm-hmm. And just that 
that music that they, it's like they wanted to, I work in news now, I work at a TV news station, so I kind of understand things from both sides too, but they wanted to pad out their show with like a minute or two, it was a long time, of, of the missiles flying and they put this bed music under it that was just, it, it just, it, it's so wrong. It was, they immediately turned it into some kind of movie. Yeah. You know, and it was involving real people. Um, yeah, it's just kind of crazy. There was a uh, <clears throat> there was a PowerPoint presentation I saw as a as a young soldier when we were doing uh, mount training or urban combat training for for the listeners out there. Um, and the, the, how we started that that day or the beginning of the training was watching a PowerPoint uh, played to let the bodies hit the floor, and essentially okay. it was pictures of dead Afghans. I, said, I, mean, it, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't so horrific that people were gasping, but it was, it was enough. It was like, you, you guys realize what you're really doing here, right? Now, I, I didn't have that thought at the time. I was too worried about being in basic for myself, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just cuts at your soul. So can you tell our listeners a, a, a little bit about why you chose to write Breaking Cadence? Well, I think one of the big reasons is I kept trying to explain and legitimize what happened to myself and to this, like the invisible, all these people who, uh, I guess just the typical American who I knew would see what I did in a very different light. And I I just felt, a lot, it's funny because I didn't share my story with a lot of people because of all the stigma wrapped up in you know, checking out on um, <clears throat> all the, you know, like leaving the military as a conscientious objector, I have a level of guilt, you know, so I was always having these conversations sure, sure. in my head with, <laughs> I don't know, like the, just a typical American, you know, who would judge me and like, how was I going to explain or defend myself when what I did, because I do think what I did was right, like I just, I didn't want to participate in an unjust war and something I saw as illegal and just behind the civil war in Iraq. I don't think they would have had a civil war if we weren't there. But yeah, I just, I, I needed to keep writing it and rewriting it to explain it to myself and to this invisible audience out there and, and like my own platoon battle buddies. I never, I had like one conversation in, when I was in, um, or LDAC, the ROTC, the first level of the officer training. I had one conversation really with my platoon buddies <laughs> about the war that went disastrously, um, which is why I pretty much cut myself off from all military people after I got out. I just thought that there was absolutely no one who would understand how I felt. So um, yeah, I think that's why I wrote it, to process it. It was kind of cathartic and to, to look at it, even, you know, as I got older, a couple years later, I, I looked at things differently. And then a couple years later, I would look at things even more differently. Um, and I think I was able to forgive myself a little bit more through writing it and um, just understand it a little better. But also, I am still really, yeah, I'm still really proud of what I did and how I handled it. And I didn't, it would be easy to just give up and just actually, you know, get deployed instead of resisting and resisting and saying no. Yeah. 
No, I, I I applaud you for writing it. It is a it's a it's a great piece of work. Um, I, I the the narrative that it takes you through really goes through a lot of very uh, typical and normal occurrences for people going into the service, and seeing it through your eyes. It it, it I even learned shit and it it, it um. You know, going back to basic, being you know the the dehumanization that you're put through, um, and and trying to explain it to yourself, trying to explain why is this okay? Why and 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 I'm sure you did this more many more times than I ever did. Why does everybody around me find this okay? Why do they find this this amount of of, of violence and chaos acceptable that we give out to the world and we we call it American freedom? Is that what yeah. we really do? It is really strange how there's no discussion about that during training. And it's really intense. I, I think part of it is because you're so structured, you know, like you can't talk to each other in the presence of a drill sergeant. You no. can't, you know, and you're so busy. You're just rushing from one thing to the next. And then, you know, you're shining your boots and you're trying to get your five hours of sleep before um, fire guard or, you know, probably even less than that. Um, I think that that might be one of the reasons why they, they have such a whirlwind training um, atmosphere. So you, there's no time to talk about things and discuss and, and say like, it wasn't it weird that blah, 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 you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, there is, there's no, <clears throat> there isn't time to think there's barely time to eat. There certainly isn't nearly enough time to sleep. Um, yeah. I had a, I had a really hard time going through basic and I, I didn't, it wasn't until years later that I realized some of the, angst that I had was about some of the things that we're talking about. So you are a jack of all trades. You write, you have your own band, you podcast, you run writing groups, which I'm super jealous of, by the way. Um, <laughs> what would you say of all those is, is, is your most love pastime of, of all the different things you, you dip into? Music for sure, because that's just pure fun. Like writing is hard work. Yes. <laughs> it really is every step of the way is work um but i i really like playing music and sadly my little folk band split up when i had babies but um i'm still really good friends with my the co-founder of the band and we we have you know dreams of getting back together someday but i, st I still play at little gigs like farmers markets and and i love it because uh with two little kids in the house it's really hard to play music for more than five minutes at a time yeah, yeah yeah but the farmer's markets they're four hours so i take all of my covers and all of my originals and i i go and i sing my heart out and i feel like so much better after that yeah do you play guitar and sing yeah i, I play guitar sort of poorly <laughs> and sing <laughs> and i've got a, yeah a i've been oh yeah that's awesome my i've been playing guitar since i was 10 so like 22 years whoa and it's one of the best de-stressors i think are out there just having a creative outlet is really important for people yeah. in general but i mean especially when you're dealing with mental health and just like you just it, it to me it's just the best thing ever and i tend to play like pretty heavy music but it's still like just as relaxing as if i was playing like jazz yeah, even so. <laughs> just 10 minutes, it's, a, it's an immediate mood adjustment. You're just like, ah, I feel so much better. Yeah, it's very good for evening out and stuff. You guys are just trying to make me jealous now. I, I, <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. So 
Rosa, what would you, what would you say was the hardest part for you writing the book? Um, oh, well, I, I mean, it was, it was hard to go back and, um, uh, rewrite, you know, actually, uh, filing my application and all of the kind of terrible feelings I had about the military and myself when I filed that, because, you know, you, it's such a lengthy process and it gets so drawn out, you know, like the, there's the three elements that you have to have. First, you, you know, you build your case. It takes months to answer all these questions in a lengthy way. Then you have to get all your letters of support. And then you have to be interviewed by a chaplain, the psychologist, and then be assigned an investigating officer. And then they kind of try to dig up dirt on you. And then you have a little hearing. And then you wait and you wait. And um, that whole reliving that through the book again and again was kind of painful, but actually the hardest part was how I was going to handle um, what I wrote about my mom because I really love my mom and, you know, I didn't want to, I, I, she's really sensitive and I didn't want her to feel bad about what I wrote. And there's like a kind of a family secret in the book that was hard to put in there because it involves her, but also just like, I don't know. I worry about people judging her for, well, why didn't you have some conversations before? If you didn't want her to join, why didn't you actually tell her that when she said, when she came home from high school as a senior in high school and said, I'm going to join the national guard. But I don't, I don't think people understand how different a world it was back then before nine 11, you know, like everything was coming up roses and the economy was gangbusters and people felt safe and secure. And, there, it was just such a different world. Like the National Guard was not seen as anything more than, oh, a little part-time job. And yeah, you go to college and you get to go to Germany uh, every summer. And, you know, they teach you that if you put your thumb up to the bartender or no, if you put raise your finger saying you want one to a German bartender, that actually means two because they count thumbs first. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's what being in the National Guard meant. Yeah, yeah. It was it was your one week in a month, two weeks a year. You know, who cares, right? It's just easy stuff. Yeah, which of of course now uh, yeah, everything is so much different. But I think we'll probably get to that point again when people are like, Oh, nothing will happen to me and so they don't think about those really serious questions like what if we are? Um, you know, what if we do start a new war? How do I feel about actually being involved in killing people? Because that's what I'm trained to do. The first thing you, you do in boot camp, you're trained to kill people. So. I think it was really interesting to see uh, the part when you were on the radio station after you had decided to go to ROTC and just seeing everybody's reaction of like, oh, how dare she? you know, oh, she should like finish her contract and then, you know, move on. But it's like people join the military to, for utilitarian choices just as much as, you know, wanting to serve their country, quote unquote. And it's just really frustrating to, to see people who are of that mindset to think, oh, they're, you know, she's just trying to weasel out of her obligation and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of those people didn't have any experience in the military or their fam- family members who were, were pretty far removed. Like, uh, you know, people, right. people like that have a lot of opinions about what you're doing, but they can't really sympathize. They can't really put themselves in your shoes. No. And I think you did such a great job of telling such a personal story and getting into your own head and giving people that opportunity to say, what would I do if I was in your position? You know, and it was like, you get to see your whole chain of thought and how, you know, you came to the decisions you did and it wasn't lightly by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that that's really important. Like we need more people to see that, to be like, what would I do if I had these thoughts? And I also thought it was weird when you were talking or when they were, you were talking to the GI rights people and they were mentioning how um, it would be harder to, for you to apply for CO status because you weren't actively religious. Yeah. That was so disappointing to hear. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But it's so true. You know, I, I didn't have that strict moral training that comes with going to church every Sunday. You know, I just, (laughs) lived life and tried to be a good person and you know learn stuff from my my mom you know like all that golden rule stuff the stuff they teach you in school about fairness and just being a good person that doesn't count that doesn't count no (laughs) and somehow we're supposed to change our mode of thinking when it comes to war and when it comes to perceived enemies like all that stuff just goes out the window because we're not seeing them as people anymore. And for those of us who, you know, have that principle of like, no, these are people and these are lives that we're impacting and communities that we're disrupting, like that somehow is seen as less important than, than oh, this is my uh, background because I'm such and such religious. Yeah. It's really bizarre that they kind of hold um, religious moral training up to this really lofty standard and they can, you know, sympathize pretty quickly with someone who's like, you know, I, I've just been taught my whole life through my religion that it's wrong to kill and all this stuff. Uh, but on the other side, <laughs> they are, you know, engaging in these terrible unjust wars that everyone is forced to kill and kind of you know, dehumanize the so-called enemy and all these civilians get wrapped up in it. It, it just, it's just uh, really this weird double standard this weird um, being a hypocrite i think absolutely the guys and i love doing the podcast being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us but we can't do all the work we need you to share an episode of ours with someone Anyone who you think might be affected by it. Maybe a a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. uh, Conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment that the military creates for minorities. And inflicts on them around the globe. And anyone else you think it might affect. Please take a moment and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're very blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. 
Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I probably can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho, Will Arenz, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, and Matt the Virgin Slayer. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if you'd like to contribute and Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did a really awesome job making our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Make sure you check on the site there for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Was there a was there a moment for you that you firmly felt there was no going back? What was was there a a time that being becoming an objector seemed more clear to you as a person than ever? Yeah, I think it was um, maybe about six months after I joined ROTC, and I kept I felt so bad about that. Like I so I got called up. And then the ROTC recruiter at my school heard that. And he, he even called me at work. He tracked me down at work because he really wanted to tell me, you know, if I joined ROTC, I could finish my degree, become an officer instead of shipping out right away. And I had kind of resigned myself to the fact that I would just have to serve this tour um, and get through it somehow. Uh, but he called me up and said, you know, you can do this. All it will take is a three-year contract extension. So I had to sign, and I already had signed a six-year contract with the National Guard. And I think that's why, like, my contract was getting close to being done. <laughs> so they needed to, if I was going to do this, they needed to keep me in longer. So but now my contract would be nine years, like, that I signed at 17. Oh, my God, it's such a long time. But um, I felt so bad because I... I did sign that contract extension and I was like, well, you know, maybe the wars will calm down. Maybe becoming an officer will, I don't know, put me in a role that's not, I don't know, a different role that maybe I will feel a little bit better about. And then, you know, within a week or two after that, that's when I discovered you could be a conscientious objector in the military still, which blew my mind. And as soon as I saw those words on this piece of paper, I knew that's exactly what I was. I, I don't know why I hadn't put the two together before. I think just because the term conscientious objector, most people do think of Vietnam, not anything today. And the, so, yeah, during after that time when I was like, well, I just signed this contract. I can't, I mean, I, I'm going to look like such a scumbag if I do it now. So I really tried to suck it up, but as the months kept dragging on, I just was more and more torn up about being in the, in the army and what I would have to do. And now I might 
you know, have to do two tours instead of just one. And I was kind of kicking myself for not just doing the first deployment. And yeah, I think I was, I was just so torn up. I was like, I, I just can't do this. Like I can't mentally <laughs> handle another five years of this. I can't. And so I called the GRI hotline a second time. And from that, from then on, I, I knew that that was it. Like I just, I can't, I couldn't be in the military anymore and live with myself. So that really sucked. Cause I, <laughs> you know, I, I called them and they send me this enormous packet of information that has all this dense language. I'm trying to, you know, make sense of myself at like, you know, like 20, 21 years old. And there isn't enough time for me to file my application before I go to LDAC, the ROTC officer training school. And it's only a month, but at that point in time, I was just like, are you kidding me? I, a month being the secret trader, you know, just, uh, I felt like such a scumbag during that too. You know, you're going through training with all of these people who are just starting their military careers and they're excited about it and energetic and rah, rah. And just think that they're just, you know, purely serving their country in this pristine way. And I was so set in such a different place mentally. Um, it was really hard to get through that month. And then really hard to, you know, actually submit the application finally because I knew that everything would change. You know, outing myself as a traitor, you know, <laughs> everyone would. Also, I found it interesting during your uh, during your part about LDAC, just, you know, the class distinctions between people that are officers is usually, you know, middle, upper middle class, middle class kids that like have you know, some kind of, they, they have a generally more easier life. And so, yeah, like what you were saying about them just, you know, being so excited about it, it's because they didn't know. And then nobody really knows when they go in, but you just, it must've been so interesting for you just coming from that perspective of like already having been through boot camp, which was like a lot more challenging than that seemed like. Yeah. That just, pissed me off so bad. <laughs> Cause not yeah, they had it easy from the very start. Like right, and then they were gonna be in charge of everyone who went through more rigorous training and understood so much more about their jobs in the military than they did. Like it does not make any sense. There's a reason junior officers get a lot of shit. Uh, yeah, I guess they just don't oh, know hell. a lot. You know? <laughs> and I would I would get asked these random questions by JOs just because you know, they didn't know, or they would tell me to do something. And I, I got really good in the military learning how to tell people no without telling them no, because <laughs> they ask you how to do something. And you're like, I can't do that. But you say, okay, sir, well, here's what I can do. Or here, okay, ma'am, here's what I can do. And then you get to the, you get it to where they understand, oh, wait, you can't do what I'm telling you. <laughs> but I'm just like, if you just fucking learn, like, <laughs> Yeah, if anything, it should be the other way around. Like they right. should have, they should know the most. They should be the most experienced, and they should have the hardest. So yeah, it, I, it's so fucking backward that it just still boggles my mind and pisses me off. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've actually had the thought that we should have a, a a combined chain of command. That like when people get to E seventy eight, they become O ones, and. Mm. 
that way that there's there, there's there's never that loss of experience but part of it is about the I don't want to call it the glamour but the the shine of being an officer is there are still some privileges that go with that and and they look down upon those that are not you know it, it it's uh yeah it's just about especially in the civilian world yes I mean yes so so many times when I was getting out or when I was talking about getting out and then everyone's like oh, are you going to go to OCS when you uh, are done? Are you going to become an officer when you get your degree? And I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> like, not only would I never want to be prior service, but I was like, there, like that, that wasn't an allure. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I need to attain this officer status because that will give me some kind of like credibility in the real world when you know as an enlisted person that officers, especially the new officers, don't really know anything. Yeah, and yet you still have to, you know, tiptoe around them and treat them with a much higher degree of respect and do everything they say. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good idea, though, if someone reached a certain rank, like E6 or E7, and then they get to be an officer. That makes way more sense to me. And that's kind of how the warrant officer program is, right? You know, pretty, it's pretty like close, they have yeah. to be E7 for a certain amount of years. And at least in, in uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps, that's how it is. You know, you have to be E7 for like a certain amount of years and then, you know, to show that you have experience and then you become, you know, a warrant officer. Part of it too is that officers get sent to do so many more jobs than enlisted people. And they, you know, they come from being a, an LT and become a, an executive officer and a commander. And then they go to a staff right. position and then they, you know, all these different things. Maybe they go do a stint in a recruiting battalion. Um, but it seems like they never they never truly spend much time working on the real fundamentals of leadership or on being that good at the job that they have when they first start. You're a platoon leader. Like for me, I was an MP. That that should be the person's most focused. But if you're always worried about the next thing, the next step that you're going to take, you know, 18 months from now, it's going to change. And that's what happened with every LT I ever had. They had the job for a very short amount of time, and then they moved on. And mm -hmm. it seemed like everybody was just much more focused on the moving on. Yeah, my my watch was a training command, and that that for uh, some of the officers. So yeah, we would have a different officer like every two months. Yeah. See, so yeah, how how do you how do you learn who your subordinates really are? How do you want you know how do you lead them with any kind of efficiency and honesty? But when that happens, it, it just it, it blows my mind. Um, so, Rosa, I mentioned earlier about you podcasting. You have a podcast that is the same title as your book. Brilliant idea, by the way. I don't know why <laughs> I, I didn't think of it. I, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell Danny to get to get on working on it right now. We need us a Fortress on a Hill book, New York Times bestseller. Heck we're, yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to make it happen. So we, um, tell the listeners a little bit about how the podcast connects with your book. Sure. Yeah, the podcast is called Breaking Cadence Insights from a Modern Day Conscientious Objector. And it really is a companion to the book because a lot of stuff got cut out of the book. And when, you know, I wanted the book to just be, you know, story and character based, and I didn't want it to get preachy or I, I wanted it to be subtle and, and, and fair and open-minded in a way that um, <clears throat> I want... I guess I wanted to not keep politics entirely out of it, you know, but I, I didn't want to come off as super like some crazy 
left-wing activisty person, which uh, you know I'm not, I'm not I'm not really an activist, even though I have strong feelings about you know our low recruitment age and stuff. So, but the podcast, you know, I was able to you know talk to my family for a whole hour, like interview my mom and my sisters about what they thought when I first said I was going to join, and then years later. And I'm like, actually, and I had to admit to them that I was applying to be a conscientious objector. And would they please write a letter of support for that? And I had kind of been secretive about it the whole time. Like I didn't like talking about it. So it came out of the blue to them. But so, yeah, I was able to have extended conversations that just would, you know, it'd be terrible in a book to read that. And I also tracked down my old lawyer who <clears throat> took my, CO case pro bono when when the army denied me and said no you're not a conscientious objector and denied my application for a final time he was um like in my corner like he was my lawyer and if the government came after me he was going to defend me in federal court he's such a fucking badass um but yeah so i was able to have a conversation you know for an hour with him and uh oh yeah and i tracked down just through like a friend, a writing friend, Fanny Garcia. She was also a conscientious objector and she, her application was approved because she was, she based it on vegetarianism, which blows my mind. Vegetarianism. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was so jealous when I heard that her application got approved because she based it on being a vegetarian and a vegan and you know, how that relates wow. to not killing. I was just like, what? They went that? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, the podcast has been great. Yeah, because I can talk directly about how ludicrous it is that we allow teenagers to sign up at 17 and 18 when mm -hmm. we strive to protect them from so many other things, so many less harmful things than a long military career that can end in, you know, PTSD or, or them getting killed or <clears throat> who knows what else. <clears throat> um, yeah. Something Henry and I were going to talk about later in an episode was just the idea of, you know, your brain doesn't fully develop exactly. until your mid twenties for yeah. dudes. It's like 25. And so you're allowing kids to make a decision that can yeah. affect them forever. And especially for people who join like you did at that age and then are kind of enculturated in that mentality. Like how, how we, 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 like nobody's really studied the long-term effects of what it does to people. Yeah, I know. What it I, doesn't do. Um, I would love to hear that podcast and get some, some brain development experts on too, because now that we have that science, it is our obligation and responsibility to, you know, yeah, to protect teenagers from these decisions that, you know, signing a six-year contract when you're 17 or 18, this is the most you know, dynamic time of your life, like you're going to change your mind about everything. You're going to change your mind about what major you want to study in school. You're going to change about your mind about who you want to date, where you want to live, like all these <clears throat> little things, but to not be able to change your mind about joining the military, which you probably don't have. Yeah. It's kind of like joining a cult, you know, the, and when you're a civilian, you just don't really understand what it is all about until you go through boot camp and then you're like, oh, I'm starting to get it. But even then you, see, you don't really understand what it's all about. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I, I, uh, I've, uh, 
I, I keep thinking that the military is is essentially run off the the fuel of youth. That yeah. if if it wasn't for the ability of eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds to car- carry heavy loads and to work really, really horrific hours that, and again, like we're talking about, their brains aren't even fully developed yet. The military couldn't accomplish what it, what it does. It just couldn't, it, 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 you know, you need, you, without trying to sound too morbid about it, you need fresh bodies. Um, and, and that's how they see it. it. It's not a, you know, you, there's no way that a system that big cannot see you as anything but a number, but a, but a statistic to be counted and you go in one column, and if you get killed or hurt or wounded, you go into a different column. But the but the bottom line is is that that youth is the only thing that could sustain a war. You know, is telling mm-hmm. young 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 dudes that they're gonna be gonna be heroes. They're protecting their country. They're fighting for freedom. All that bullshit. Yeah, I, I think that's one strategy that if we by some miracle could get Congress to raise the recruitment age to like twenty. I think that might finally make an impact on the kind of, you know, if the military finally has a really, really grave recruitment problem and the, if the military shrunk, I don't know, this is just in my head, <laughs> you know, then I, I just want to I find some strategy, some way. And I think raising the recruitment age is part of it for, for people in power to, start reigning in these the forever wars and the unjust wars like if you don't have the people if you don't have that fuel and the numbers you can't do it and i think that we're we're approaching that point as a country because already right now the 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 army at the very least is in a recruitment crisis um and they they just can't find thanks so much is, is that the the economy is doing reasonably well and it's it's I think it's because it's so easy to know about what's actually happening in wars. You know, if if yeah, it's a he- heck of a lot easier now than when we joined. Yes, yes. The, the 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 with the internet and social media, it has changed so much since since that time, and we're able to reach out and talk to people much more easily about their experiences and and to see to see that thing. Um, so I know you're super super busy today. As today is your launch date for your book. Um, but, uh, before we close out here, can you tell people where they can find your work? Sure. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's, um, I think you can order it through Powell's books and, you know, any bookstore in your area, they have the, you know, the powers, like they just look it up in their computer and they can order it for you. But if you want to order it online, probably the easiest is through, uh, Amazon and, um, the publisher Ulligan Press has a page where you could order it through Powell's too, and maybe one other, one other option. Yeah, and it's just the physical book and the ebook right now. But I am recording the audiobook vor- version for people who like nice. audiobooks. I'm recording it in a closet in my house, and I only have a few more chapters, so it'll be out sometime in the summer. No, I, I, that's great. I think that I think that. All authors, especially authors that write stories like yours, should be the one to do their audiobooks because you know where the hard points are. You know, it's it's different when it's somebody else telling your story, but when you're the one speaking it, there's a there's a credibility and a truth that comes to it that wouldn't come through with somebody else reading. Yeah, it. I was really happy that they thought my voice was good enough to do it because yeah, I, I mean, I've got all the 
characters in my head and, and some of the military stuff. Like I just can't imagine uh, someone, a random person walking in or some voice actor that doesn't know anything about the military trying to do it. So yeah, I'm really happy they, they let me do it. Well, I will, uh, I will definitely make sure that we've got some links in our show notes for uh, finding your book on Amazon. And uh, just so the listeners know, we're going to uh, meet up again with Rosa in June and, and talk about this a little more in, in depth, um, and which I'm really excited about, by the way. It's, uh, I, I've only done uh, tel- telepodcasting. I don't know what we would call <laughs> this exactly. Um, but uh, but uh, Kagan and I, uh, we both live in the same area, so we'll be able to go and sit down with you and, and chew the cut about this a little bit more. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. All right, well. Thank, thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time.